let's table it for now and welcome everyone to the No Name Podcast. My name is Ryan Warner, joined by Dustin Garillo and Dr. Ellie Shockley. And I think Ellie brought up a very interesting uh, frame for this week's conversation that I'll introduce now and then encourage you all to check in some with some check-in thoughts. And then perhaps we'll get to that topic. And the topic would be the uh, $1.9 trillion uh, coronavirus relief package that passed this week, passed on the one-year anniversary of the beginning of the lockdown measures around COVID-19. And um, what we think about that, either from a public policy standpoint or from the standpoint of money, debt, uh, relief. And so I think that it's a pretty interesting, and I agree with you, Ellie, it's a pretty interesting um Subject to have on the record uh, for historical document purposes and just to see um, how it goes for everybody and maybe come back to this conversation in the future and see if we were on the right track or not. So I, I, I will second that uh, suggestion. And then for now, I think it just it'd be interesting to have some, some brief check-in thoughts from everyone. How'd you, how'd you, how'd you guys' this week go? And I could start uh, on that front. So I didn't hear anyone popping in. Uh, I testified again this week on uh, SB 2291, which is the Environmental Social Governance Bill, in is now in the House, came over from the Senate. It's trying to help North Dakota uh, have at least some intent on the books to give them the option in the future to potentially direct their investment funds for the legacy fund in particular towards industries and investment vehicles that are not necessarily trying to use their investment um, dollars to support fossil fuel development. So there's a movement called environmental social governance, which creates a list of criteria. It's a long list of criteria, like 150 that rates uh, each company and each investment opportunity along their environmental impacts, their social impacts, and their governance impacts as they're defined by this criteria. And so what's happened over the last one year, at least, or perhaps the last three or four years, is that um, the old capitalists are starting to use the potential of climate change and other business-related effects uh, from pollution to uh, rate investment opportunities. So in the past, since you could pollute for free, it wasn't a part of the calculation. Now folks are starting to think, hey, we won't be able to pollute for, for free forever. We got to address climate change. This becomes a financial risk and we're going to rate you or downgrade you if you have uh, carbon risk exposure in your portfolio or in your business model. And so that's hit North Dakota hard. And so um, what they're trying to do with this bill is to give North Dakota some legislative intent to fight back and maybe invest in things that don't care about ESG or that um, are neutral on the whole uh, uh, ESG movement, uh, which proves to be very impossible. So the entire, almost all of capitalism has moved on, moved towards ESG models. Uh, it's just going to, it's just too much uncertainty if you don't, given uh, what we're going to try to do with climate change in the next 10 years from a economic policy standpoint. So there's just way too much risk. And so this ended up being a merely symbolic um, bill after 
some folks brought up some um, some of the bad better parts of their their first draft. So now it's, they're going to have a study. They're going to study whether uh, these, what, what these ESG funds are doing, how North Dakota can um, potentially change its tact going forward. And it's going to give the investment board an option if they can find one to invest in non-ESG funds, provided that the return is equivalent or better. So m- mostly a, a symbolic um, bill at this point. So I testified symbolically <laughs> against the entire um premise of the bill, which is that North Dakota is being picked on, that we're being discriminated against because uh, we're this uh, fossil fuel state. And now the world is against us because they want to address climate change. And I don't think that has anything to do with it. I know we have a, a little bit of a persecution complex here in North Dakota with the outsiders always trying to mess with us. But in this case, it's more that, uh, you know, this is just what capitalists do. They affix prices to behaviors uh, so they can create a more efficient market, and this is just a continuation of that. So I, I phoned in my, uh, I phoned in my testimony, literally, and uh, just to provide a counter narrative to what was um, a sob story coming from our fossil fuel industries about how we're being targeted and discriminated against, which is not the case. And uh, it was good to provide a little bit of feedback and to just hear what some of the legislators in that committee were thinking. Um, I think they still don't understand ESG as an investment movement, um, and they don't really understand why we just can't stand up to those um, these activist investors, which uh, we can't stand up to them because they have all the money and we have a tiny, tiny fraction of it. And so under a capitalist system, that's just not gonna work for you. Um, so they're still kind of gaining that knowledge or that insight. So there was a little confusion in in the room, but I think um, given that the bill is merely symbolic, it'll be okay for us going forward. Uh, it won't do anything good or bad, uh, but uh, it's just a discussion that legislators need to have as they kind of move forward into the 2020s. Uh, so I spent some time on that. And um, the other thing that happened is we skipped forward uh, <laughs> um, uh, 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 an hour today. Daylight savings is, we're back into daylight savings, I guess. And um, I'm interested in uh, Ellie and Dustin, your guys' thoughts on the whole time change situation. This is one of the few uh, policy debates where I have absolutely no opinion. I don't care what time it is. Either pick one or the other or keep it the way it is. I can, I'm fine any and all ways. Um, I see the points of view on each side, but I really don't care. Uh, <laughs> this is one of the very few uh, areas where I don't have an opinion. Uh, so with that, I'll kick it over to Dustin or Ellie. Well, um, I, I think it's funny how some people on this issue get really riled up. And it, it's generally people that don't get riled up about other things. <laughs> um, you know, I know a few lobbyists who are, are very, um, uh, they don't stray out of their uh, wheelhouse except for on the daylight savings time issue. And it's quite funny. <laughs> Uh, it's that one issue that you can go, you know, hog wild on and nobody cares. Uh, you know, I personally, I think that, uh, we should just pick a time and stick to it. Uh, you know, daylight savings time has to do with, uh, world war one and product producing goods and stuff like that. It, it, it's not as, uh, it's not as integral to, to 
a global system as the time zones themselves. So, uh, and I know there's a movement to get rid of time zones as well, but that that's not going anywhere. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it, it, it's definitely an interesting concept, uh, you know, for people to get upset about. Um, I do oppose the government taxing our sleep, uh, which is what daylight <laughs> savings time is when you spring forward. Uh, and the rebate that you get in the fall was your sleep to begin with. So it's just like when people file their taxes and they get money back. No, that was your money all along. You were just letting the government uh, borrow it interest-free. So there's a lot of parallels here to tax policy. <laughs> That's a really good argument. Wow. That's a very interesting linkage there. Um, I am not a fan of uh, the time change. I think economists have to, a certain kind of economist, which it's on my mind lately that economists don't have a lot of consensus and there's so many different kinds, but some of them um, have done research on the macro effects or basically the micro effects aggregated um, of it on human behavior. And I mean, there's more like car accidents and stuff like that. Uh, parents with children on the ADHD and or autism spectrum, they notice that their children are totally whacked out with the time changes. So I just don't really think it, it it's a good idea in the modern era. I don't care which time we stick with, you know, I, I, I don't care if I live in central time or if I live in mountain time. I'm like, just pick something, stick with it and let us build our lives around it, we'll all get used to it. Um, so that's my point of view on that. Uh, just kind of a common sense social science take, I guess I would see it as. Um, I was going to tell you guys that um, for me the past week, you know, a lot of it's been centered on my work life, which, you know, I have to separate from a lot of my other endeavors. Um, but it's a really big part of my life. And, you know, some weeks that's really the, the main thing going on for me. Um, I returned to my cubicle for, for two days a week and it's pretty awesome. Um, so I, I do work at the Capitol and it's just, it was really nice to get out of my house after a year and have that sort of brain space in my cubicle where there's not like pets or humans who like need things. I mean, they, they still need things. They're just at home and they're, they're dealing with it, you know? Um, and just, just stuff like that, like the threshold at which someone will bother me at home is very different from when I'm outside the house. So it's like suddenly things that seem like emergencies actually aren't, I'm exaggerating a little, but you know what I'm trying to say? Um, so it was pretty cool. And I, I do really like my job and I do like being able to perform it well. And it's been really hard. It's been hard on my self-esteem like the last year, not being able to perform at the level I often can perform at because of how, uh, difficult COVID has been and like my, the inescapability of my house. <laughs> so yeah, it's a good thing. Um, you know, my job is impacted by the session a little more in the sense that the education agencies sometimes need to bring information to legislators throughout the session to help legislators make decisions. And so I do support that. Um, and also, given that it's the COVID era, there's there's new research that I'm undertaking because we want to understand the impact of COVID. And, and a lot, you know, COVID has exacerbated some of our uh, disparities 
But it also has turned some disparities on their head when I'm looking at the data. It's really interesting. Like, it's kind of hard to explain, but, you know, usually in educational data, you're going to see sort of classic disparities in in the American society where there's some racial disparities. There'll be disparities of children with and without special education. There'll be disparities between children who have free and reduced lunch versus regular lunch, stuff like that. But sometimes a pandemic um, changes them a bit. And um, I've seen that COVID has made uh, North Dakota's disadvantaged children actually less transient. They are more stable right now. And they're like, I have reason to believe they're moving out of state less and they're dropping out of school less. So it's interesting, you know, and, and, and more so than children who, you know, lack those marginalized identities. So there's just, I don't know, there's, there's really quirky things going on. Um, and, and it doesn't mean that that's going to necessarily result in good academic outcomes. You need a couple other things in place before something good comes of it, obviously, you know. But um, anyway, so I've just been working on projects at work, and um, I know that a lot of people are focused on the legislative session from the point of view of this, as a citizen, which I think is really wonderful. But I get really swept up in it as uh, a supporter of lawmaking through research, and that's been my focus uh, for the most part in recent times. Well, thanks for that, Ellie, and thanks, Dustin. Um, I have a question for you, Ellie. Are you prepared or willing to testify on anything during this session or have you pretty much concluded that due to your position within state government, it would be too high risk to put yourself out there in in whatever whatever you decide to or would decide to testify for or against? Yeah, I've decided to play by ear. Um, It is not a small thing if I testify and I have to tell my employer in advance um, exactly, you know, what committee I'm going to. And, and the reason I have to report in in that way, which I really don't love, um, even though I do get along well with my employer, so it's not bad. It's just uh, in, on principle, I don't love it. Um, I'm not afraid of what I stand for or anything. And I, I do know that it's because of fear that essentially in, a legislator will see me there. If that legislator does not like me or doesn't like one of the agencies I serve or doesn't like somebody who works in one of the agencies I serve, they might start complaining and like literally wasting people's time and making them anxious and making them afraid and like stuff like that. And nobody wants to deal with that. People are just so, it, it's just a lot. It's kind of heavy. Um, and I know that we should have leaders who can weather those storms. And I think I'm, I'm personally better at weathering them than some. And I, but it just is what it is. It's 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 kind of a waste of time too because we're trying to get work done and we're getting in trouble. You know, it sucks. So anyway, um, I'm only going to testify when I think that my testimony would truly make a, a special level of difference. Like it like it's actually worth it, and I would go through the proper process of informing people. You know, up the chain in terms of my employer and you know. But I'm I'm waiting for me to see that that's how I'm useful. You know, I could be very useful potentially by sending emails and like that doesn't have to happen during work hours, you know? So I'm navigating it with like a cost benefit ratio kind of thing in mind. 
Yeah, it makes sense. I know we had touched on this before the session had started. I was just wondering if there was any evolving uh, from your point of view, because I do think it is, uh, I think you'd be awesome giving testimony, um, depending on what your, um, what your move to, to provide. And uh, it's a good experience. And um, from what I can tell, having actual citizens there versus the lobbyists that they see every day um, is a real opportunity to educate and um, help help the legislators that are kind of in their own little bubble during the session to uh, see what's happening with the rest of the world um, that typically doesn't check in. So I think we've kind of built a system that um, encourages them to lean on the lobbyist point of view uh, when it comes to making decisions outside their expertise areas. And uh, if we can get more regular people in there on a consistent basis, I think it helps them kind of expand that view just a tiny bit. Obviously, it's not going to be able to compete with a well-paid lobbyist with a staff of 10, but uh, it's just good. It's good. And I think you'd be great in there. So I would encourage you, but I understand that you have other uh, prior or other, other things that are coming to your calculation. We'll leave it, we'll leave it at that, but thank you, Ellie. Um, I want to shift now into this uh, latest stimulus package from the president in the federal government. And I want to, before we really get into the details of what, whether we like it or not, I just want to, I want to have a call back to the last crisis, the one in 2008, 2009, when um, the financial system seemingly fell apart. And in contrast, that crisis with today's crisis, obviously the, the inflection points were different. There was a housing bubble and some derivative markets were poorly uh, calculated on the behalf of some financial institutions uh, that created a bubble that was that burst versus the pandemic induced shutdown that uh, roiled some markets along with some trade war stuff that Trump was doing at the same time or before or after. So the, the cause is different. Um, and now the reactions, the, the, the fix from the North, uh, from United States government standpoint is different. So the first time around we, uh, we saved the, the financial institutions, we bailed them out, we bailed out um, car makers and other um, big industries. And we didn't bail out the regular people. So a lot of people uh, during that time period lost their houses uh, because their house uh, had been in a, a housing market bubble as well. So when, when the, everything changed, they couldn't make the payments and what they owed on their house was more than what the house was worth. And so they're underwater and lots of people lost their homes. And so instead of bailing out those people and their mortgage payments, we just let them lose their, lose, go bankrupt and uh, have to start their lives over. But we did bail out other institutions that could have potentially went bankrupt as well. Uh, and the, th the thought process was we can't, these are too big to fail is the thought process. Now, uh, we've done some of that with our current crisis. There was some quantitative easing that went on right away after we shut things down to make sure the markets didn't get screwed up. And obviously, the stock market is <laughs> both the Republican and the Democratic Party's main concern when it comes to monetary policy. Uh, but we, at, throughout the last year, we have decided both Republican-controlled and Democratic-controlled um, governments have decided that some payments were in order, some direct payments to citizens, through, to all citizens, in fact. Uh, and so we have got a certain amount of payments and we got the newest one coming through and some people may have already gotten theirs at this point. Uh, 
and so that's where we're at. And this is a way to kind of stimulate the economy. What it does is uh, if it goes to people that don't have money, it kind of urges them to spend it because now they can take care of some bills. Uh, they can take care of things they've been putting off, buy medicine, uh, pay the rent. Maybe they're six months behind. Now they're only four months behind. Uh, there's a lot of things that you can do, obviously, if you haven't been able to make money during the pandemic. And this $1,400 per person is going to make a huge difference. And then there's um, an amount per kid that I don't have the number in front of me, but it's pretty pretty good amount per kid that you have as well. So this is a huge, huge um a huge bill for lots of people in America. It's going to save save lives. It's going to save careers. It's going to head off. Um, uh, it's going to head off mental health crises. It's going to head off drug addiction. It's going to do lots of good things. So it's very much in uh, in my mind uh, the right thing to do. But I think there are some concerns about how it's being done, who's getting the money, and whether there's too much money. Even Democrats uh, seemingly were scared of the price tag. We're talking about $1.9 trillion, and that is a big number. So um, before we get more into the details, I want to hear from Dustin and Ellie. Um, on the first hand, I'd like to hear from you guys about what it means on a personal level, just you know, from a financial standpoint. And then second of all, We'll, we'll move into the policy, policy questions that are at the heart of this um, stimulus package. Dustin, Ellie, who, who would like to go first? Well, on, on a personal level, the, the, uh, I look at all the money that, that, that we get back on this as, you know, it, it's, we're getting a refund on all the money we paid in the Social Security over the years. You know, I, I know that uh, in my uh, working career, I paid in about $40,000 in the Social Security. Uh, and so, you know, uh, what, what, uh, what I've gotten back uh, is, is pretty, uh, pretty much a, a return on that, uh, which is great because, you know, I'm still one of those people that is not exactly sure that Social Security will be there for our generation. So... It's it it's kind of funny it, if you think about it. Uh, you know, 20 years ago, uh, we were all debating uh, privatizing Social Security because our generation didn't know if we would get it, and and now we're gonna we're, we're getting some refunds because the system's already uh, falling apart. <laughs> uh, you know. The, the biggest issue with all this is the fact that the government has the power to shut down the economy. That's the root crisis that, that people don't want to talk about because it's, it's not the emotionally kind thing to talk about, but the fact that the government is in, in power to, to break the system in the way that it has. And uh, as a result, we've got to, you know, keep on spending money that is printed out of thin air and generated out of thin uh, ether, uh, you know, $6 trillion in a year on top of the regular spending that government does. You know, I believe that that will bring our one-year spending toll somewhere in the uh, neighborhood of $10 trillion, uh, you know, at some point it becomes real money uh the you know this is this is all a big experiment in in how uh 
a economy can function. You've got the Federal Reserve, which uh, makes it very easy and cheap for for the uh, lending of money, both to private sector and public sector. Uh, and then you've got the, the feds who are deficit spending into oblivion. And it doesn't have an immediate effect because we've got so much decline lately. But um, eventually this is going to catch up to us. Um, eventually we're going to be looking at numbers in the range of, you know, eight to 10% on inflation, out, even outside of energy and, and food. And uh, we're going to pay for it one way or the other. And what is the mechanism to offset that cost down the road going to be? Uh, you know, so, so much of government policy is not solving problems. It's just rearranging problems, right? And kicking the can down the road. Uh, this is going to be a big can down the road that we're going to have to deal with. And, and uh, it's going to, it's probably going to surprise us when it happens because it'll probably be just as we're hitting the next crisis. Interesting, Dustin. Well, I want to get back to two ideas that you just brought up, uh, maybe not right now, but maybe within 15, 20 minutes. The first would be the government has the power to take, turn off the economy. I want to understand more of where you're coming from on that or to have you outline what, what you think we're not talking about on that issue, because I think that's a pretty interesting frame. And then the one I'm also interested in is this idea of re real money or, or more broadly, what is money? Because I think the, the we... Uh, <laughs> This, what, the idea of how do we define what money is, is something that's fascinated, fascinated me since I first um, heard about money when I was like four or five years old. Uh, what is value? What is wealth? What is money? I think the, that's part of what this conversation is trying to un untangle as well. But uh, before we get into that, I see we have Norton joining us as well. Hey, Norton. We're just talking about right now the stimulus uh, that got passed, the $1.9 trillion, the $1,400 per adult kind of um, stimulus package and the prompt is how it's going to affect you on a personal level and then whether you're worried or ambivalent about this on a policy standpoint and so dustin was just finishing up and uh, i want to hear yet from ellie and yourself norton welcome norton would you like to speak now or are you having audio issues shows that he is muted. So you're muted right now, Norton, if you're trying to talk. Maybe he can't hear us yet. Um, but anyway, okay. So um, personally, for me, looking at the situation, you know, I'm aware of the desperate circumstances that a lot of members of our community are living in right now. I mean, there's people who slip into homelessness every day. Um, in our community in Bismarck, Mandan, um, and obviously the rest of the country. But sometimes it's easier for me to really pay attention to what's going on locally, even though I know it's global, perhaps, um, because it makes it very real for me. Um, there are people who don't have money for food and diapers and just really basic stuff. Um, and it's a real problem. And I just knowing that in these really rough times and these times that were very, these were very dangerous for all there. The vaccine rollout has been decent, um, especially in our community and people really are not dying like they were before. 
So thank goodness it's getting better. But um, just the actual, you know, threat to life in, across so many issues for so many people, it, it was very scary and sad and, and heavy. And so um, this relief really needed to come a lot sooner. Um, but I'm, I celebrate its arrival now. And for me, it's just about extinguishing some real suffering that's really happening. And um, I'm a part of a Facebook group where people ask for help and people who give help are in the group. And, you know, what people are going through, it's just, it's harsh to see sometimes, but it really is very tough for some people. So I just think that um, Americans deserve better than desperation and crushing poverty. And I'm pretty open to good arguments about economic policies, but I will always say that there should be a safety net because humans just inherently matter. And I just don't think we should just let people die in the street because that's literally what some of these people are facing. Um, so yeah, I'm supportive of that. I am very concerned about the government's propensity to kick cans down roads. It is a real problem. And I may not always understand the problem because it may be beyond my expertise, but that I'm not cool with. I, I struggle to wrap my head around some of these economic issues because, you know, as a social scientist and the way that I'm trained and even the way that I think my brain kind of works naturally is I look towards evidence and I look towards consensus and I use those because consensus among people who actually know what they're talking about, to be clear. I look at evidence, I look at consensus, I look at, you know, empirical evidence and that's where I draw conclusions. And I find economics really difficult to navigate. The field has so little consensus. Um, and, that, you know, it's just not like that in psychology. I mean, we have our arguments for sure. But um, a, a philosopher of science would probably agree with me that economics is in a time of crisis. Um, it's a stage that science uh, and I think I think maybe just intellectual thought in general can go through. I, I don't know. definitely know that it's specific to science, like it could happen in the humanities too. Well, paradigms can be to me, not just scientific. Um, but in any case, I don't really feel like I understand what actually happens um, with government spending and the services it does or doesn't provide. And I, I'm not sure what to expect, um, but I know that we have a pretty bad habit of I, I just I know that we're where we are because of past policy decisions that haven't been wise. Um, but I do want to bail out human beings who are suffering. And I'm pretty skeptical of excessive means testing because I think that um, money getting in the hands of a few people who have resources um, is maybe an OK price to pay for not missing other people, you know, and, and from what I see with means testing type of policy is that it actually ends up cutting out people who are in need. So um, pretty uh, direct payments with little criteria applied to them. I feel like it's probably better, uh, but I know that there are arguments about whether or not that's a good thing. Anyways, I guess those are my thoughts. I'm more here to listen to people who feel like they have a better handle on economics than I do. Well, well, I think all of that is is why they call economics the dismal science. Uh, that there there are more schools of thought in economics than most sciences. 
Um, I'm personally somewhere in between what they call the Austrian school and the Chicago school, which in some areas are very different. In some areas, they, they line up pretty well. Um, but, uh, you know, the, right, right now, you know, the, the overriding issue is that, you know, the, the economy today is broken because the officials in government decided to shut down the economy. So if the, the policy I've had for the last year on all of this is that it's the you broke it, you bought it uh, principle and that, uh, you know, we have to get through this situation and then establish rules for the next time. And, you know, if this happens again and we haven't established rules, there's no way anybody's going to support shutting down the economy again With, without having a consensus on on how this is going to work in the future. Um, the next time that government tries to do this, it, it's going to be a total, uh, even more chaotic than it is now. Um, you're going to have obviously states that, that uh, watch the states that didn't shut down at all. Uh, you know, the, the Floridas and the, the South Dakotas are going to be kind of the, the model in the future. Uh, if this happens again, and if it happens relatively soon, because then you're going to have the conspiracy mongers say, oh, well, this is the new system they're going to use to control us. Uh, you know, that's why officials need to come up with long-term policies on these sorts of things. And I don't see any of that happening. You know, it, all everything that we've been seeing at the congressional and state level on this, on the pandemic issue is spending money in the short term as a stopgap, but not actually addressing the policy going forward. And, you know, if, if we go through all this and it's just right back to business as usual and, and there's no planning, uh, then, you know, th then we will not have learned the lesson from it. And, and the next time is going to be worse and people are going to ignore what the government says uh, because you're going to have even more divisiveness because, you know, the people that uh, that that want to be stubborn are going to point to how the the states that were stubborn uh, in fighting against the regulations uh, came out okay. So, I mean, and, and that's going to if you want to see a, a dichotomy of, of two Americas splitting even more, uh, just wait for that to happen. Uh, you know, it, instead of just a handful of states doing nothing, you, you you could have 30 states doing nothing and 20 states shutting everything down. And and then, uh, you know, the way the Senate is set up, uh, good luck getting uh, uh, bailout packages for everybody then when it's not even the majority of states that are uh, affected. So, uh, you know, long term, that there's there's definitely uh some problems. And then on the economic side, again, you know, we're going to end up paying for this one way or the other down the road, whether it's higher inflation, higher taxes, um, et cetera. And, uh, you know, it, it's going to continue to diminish our overall economic output by, by sucking, uh, productivity out of the system to pay for what we had to, to do now. Well, I see Norton has joined us again. Norton, are you are, are you able to hear and speak with us at this point? Yeah, right, right now, finally, I uh, had to restart <laughs> my computer two or three times. I don't know what's going on, but um, interesting, um, Dustin. 
what you're saying is, I mean, this has been a fascinating experience for us all. Um, and what's obvious here is what you're saying is, as long as there's distrust in government, this is gonna happen. And what's happened since the 50s with uh, Ronald Reagan and with their intense desire to say, government is your enemy instead of your friend, everything about a huge segment of this country distrusts the government to be there for them. So they look at the government as being more or less a foe. And even though farmers take huge amounts of subsidies, even though corporations continually get bailed out, even though all these things that government does have been beneficial for large corporations and, and farmers and all these other things, they continue to, and that's that's what's so lacking in our country is this ability and belief that the government is actually working for them And and so Dustin, you're you're right. It's it's never gonna be solved as long as people feel like the government is their enemy, as long as people feel like, okay, I'm gonna take what I can get from the government as long as it benefits me, but I'm not gonna spend more taxes for these other people that don't have anything to do with me. And it, it, it's it's sinful that we we pay taxes as, as a as a country. And, and we don't really feel like we're getting any benefit from these taxes unless it personally benefits us. So that's why our healthcare is in chaos. That's why our so many of our systems are in chaos. And it, it's really been building, you know, probably not just 50 years, but, you know, longer than that, where people just have this intense feeling that they're not getting any benefit from the taxes they pay. So I sat with uh, some people from California and from uh, Norway, and we were sitting at a table. And this guy from California, of course, said, well, you guys, you, you really sucks over there because you pay so much tax. And the guy from Norway said, well, just think of the benefit. We get education. We get health care. We get care for our elderly. We get we get all these things so we see a, a true benefit from their taxation. In America, we don't see true benefit from taxation because we're still paying health care insurance through our employee. We have to go to uh, private, you know, charities for our poor people. And, you know, so we really don't have any ongoing real feel that, that our government is working for us it's always working for somebody else. And, and I guess as long as that feeling, and, and, it, and it's so deep and wide that it's never going to be fixed unless we have, I don't know what we're going to, uh, un, unless something happens. And Ellie and Dustin, what do you feel could be this monumental change that makes people feel like their taxes they're paying is actually giving them benefit? 
You know, I just had a thought, an idea, a really interesting activity we could do. And if you guys remember, like a year ago, we were hoping to plan some interesting stuff. And then the virus like rained at our parade. Um, And I do think things are getting a lot safer. So we can go back into thinking about in-person activities again, I think. Uh, You know, outside would be ideal. But we had been thinking outside at a point. But um, in any case, I think creating an activity where people sort of simulate the process of deciding what state government, for example, I know federal government is another scope, but we're we're more like local folks, what state government is supposed to actually be responsible for. And, you know, just and like a working group, people say, okay, well, we do uh, need blah, blah, blah. Okay. So, you know, kind of going through consensus or sometimes majority based decisions, because you'll need something to do this exercise, people kind of flesh out, you know, what a government kind of makes sense. And then like, maybe there's people involved in the project who have experience with government costs. Like obviously Dustin, you know a lot about what costs what, or has historically cost what in government. But um, maybe if we have, like, I have a friend who's getting married to somebody in legislative council, like maybe that person would occasionally, you know, weigh in on a project, like just eyeball it and say, I think this might be the cost range or something like that. And then we kind of discuss what the budget really looks like. And then thinking about, we can think a bit about, um, you know, would being more directly involved in the process of building one's governance really make people see that connection between the services and the money. And then I, I think it would allow for, I think of it as kind of like an ex, like a, a simulation and an experiment at the same time, if that makes sense. And I think it could help teach people about what is actual government overspending and what isn't. So if that, if that sort of experiment that, you know, maybe you do it in one day or maybe do it over a couple weeks with some touch points, I'm not sure. But if that experiment results in a government that looks very radically different from what we have, like, let's compare the differences. Where is all this spending happening currently that we wouldn't actually consent to if we had any say about it? And I think that learning process would help <clears throat> enlighten advocates and activists and such like ourselves communicate with other people about getting involved in governance and trying to see the connection between tax dollars and service and help them help them be empowered to shape what they're looking for. But I think we do need to give people hope too, that they can do anything about it. I love it, Ellie. I think we do need to start thinking about what it going back to our in-person event idea list and start to think about community engagement on a face-to-face level. So I, I love that idea. I think it's definitely something we need to start talking about. Time is getting right as far as the um, vaccination rates and um, community spread lessening. So yes, that's a great discussion. Um, I, let's continue to, to kind of talk about that over the next couple of weeks as we um, as we move forward into the session at the end of the session and, and start to plan for the summer because I, I love that idea. I wanted to... Um, answer briefly Norton's prompt, which was, how do we get people to like the government again? I think what happened is that the politicians um, got bought off by big business. And so the tax dollars do go somewhere, they go to business. And and that's that's both at the state and national levels. They go to business and they go to people that know how to work the system. So people that are technocrats and bureaucrats by nature can work the system and are much more easier for them to navigate the system and and make it work for them. 
Whereas the rest of us um, that don't want to work the system aren't bureaucrats or technocrats and uh, don't have big business interests. Uh, we wonder where the money goes because we only see it going um, in, but don't see it coming out. So I think it's just, uh, everything. The politicians have been captured by, by big business um, and, and more captured by the ideology, which is we can't directly help people. But what we can do is we can help all these businesses and the businesses will indirectly help people by giving them jobs. And so this idea that this is how this is public policy and it's infected both Democrats and Republicans. You know, we just have to help the businesses and the businesses will take care of everything else. You know, this private um, public private partnership idea, <laughs> which is um, it's a recipe for um, unaccountability and non-transparency, because once you have a private public partnership, all you do is you have public money going to private interests. And then that's who knows what happens after that. Anything could happen. It might be good, but it, most likely we just won't know what happens. So that's where, you know, the interesting thing about Reagan saying that the government is the problem is that he was running to be a part of the government. He was running to be the government, to be, to be the, the, the representative of the government. So I think what you do if you want to change public perception about the government is the bad guy. No, actually, government employees are some of the smartest, most dedicated um, patriotic people in, in our country. The problem is politicians. <laughs> politicians are the problem. Government is neutral. And so if you have the right politicians in power, you can make government do a lot of cool things. So you just tweak that um, tweak that idea that um, it's not the government, it's the politicians. And then I want to have a quick call back to Ellie's um, observation that there's a crisis in economics. Yeah, there is a crisis. The crisis is that they've been trying to call themselves a science for for 150, 200 years, but it's a it's closer to a religion, a spirituality belief in the way the world works, and there is no science in economics. It's all um, it's all religion. It's a belief system based but on. But I don't think you can say that. That that's that's the thing though. Like like behavioral economists are literally conducting experiments, and hilariously, they're mostly psychologists and don't even realize it. So right. there are there is actual science happening for real, like because it's the definition of science is like uh, hypothesis testing. And like these dudes are hypothesis and so are some women, but they don't they don't treat their women very well. <laughs> but uh, they 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 are doing empirical work, a lot of them. But then there's like the humanities type of econ, which is like it's different. And it's kind of you would. It's sort of philosophically incommensurable. So basically, they there's like different fields altogether. Um, I almost I would feel say, like that's the problem. Well, yeah, but, it, but the premise is that we're we're rational beings, which we're not. We're emotional beings, um, and we use ration to rationalize our behaviors and to make stories out of what happens to us. But we're not. But I don't by think it. that they agree on that. Like, I think Dustin could clarify, but Dustin, I don't really think the Austrians feel that way, but maybe some Chicago school people do. Yeah, uh, I think that it comes down to, um, well, there's the economics of actually charting what's happening with real numbers uh, and, and accounting. And then there's the economics of trying to interpret that into why it's happening, what's causing what. And then there's the third tier, which is the economics of how the world should be. Um, so I think that uh, what, what Ellie, you're talking about is the, the more numbers crunching type. Uh, and then also the trying to explain what's going on type. And then the third type is the theoretical type, which is sort of the religious uh 
component of all this. So it, it's it's all happening at the same time. Not all economists are out there spouting, you know, their their theory on the universe. Uh, they are, you know, quantifying what is actually happening and, and trying to explain it. Um, you know, and 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 frankly, there's a lot of people that are called economists in the public who really aren't economists. I mean, for, but by the the uh, standard set by uh, cable news networks, all of them included, uh, I'm as much of an economist as anybody, and I you know haven't taken anything past bachelor's degree. So, um, uh, so you know, it it all depends on who is labeling the uh, the spokesman as an economist and and then what kind they are. Uh, you know, when you look at mon M2 monetary supply, it's, it's, it's a very quantifiable thing. How, how much currency is in circulation? Uh, and then looking at in the past when, when the currency is in cir circulation, what happens to interest rates? What happens to inflation? That's the very scientific part of it. I mean, th there, there are patterns that you can decipher. Uh, and then beyond that, uh, you know, it, it, it gets kind of into uh, uh, philosophy. Um, so, right. you know, it, it, it's all kind of the same thing. It's all, it, 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 there's a big spectrum of, of what are called economists. Right. Well, it, I think it also goes back to how much you, you have faith in uh, being able to quantify everything enough to have a full account of, of benefit and cost. Because I don't think you can quantify everything. And uh, depending on what you quantify, your benefit cost, your cost benefit ratio is going to be tweaked one way or the other. And so there's a lot of there's a lot of gray area for manipulation. So what I see is happening is that you come up with the public policy you like, and then you find the economists to justify it, and they and they write the report, and uh, and then on your way you go, on your way you go. So it's it's not a science in the in the in the in the classical sense, which is we're all. Uh, asking questions and, and sharing data, and once a consensus is, is reached, um, once enough replication has been uh, found to be the case, then we all have this kind of general, general agreed upon version of reality, and it's subject to change and, and new new facts coming to light. But that's kind of this shared consensus process we have. And, and yeah, it's a lot like engineering in that aspect, right? You know, and, and, here's here's what I want to do. Here's here are my numbers. Make it work. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of that. Right. Well, so we're, uh, there's a lot of talking past each other. Um, we only have uh, six minutes. This uh, just just getting started in this conversation. So <laughs> unfortunately, Ellie is going to tell us to stop here pretty soon. But what I would hear for a checkout thought, everyone, I, I want to hear what you think money is, because I think I think we all have different ideas of what what money is or should be. And um, what, what would, money is to. To me, is corporate power because uh, if you look at the United States of America since day one, uh, corporate has always ruled over people, and uh, so therefore, corporations set up what our money is, and corporations decide how we deal with the money, and it's all about corporate and landed. Well, in the beginning, it was landed power, and now it's corporate power that did that dictates. What, what money is to the American public. We as people are wage slaves. We work 
for them. We do what we they tell us. And if we don't do what they tell us, then they fire us. And it's all about, uh, you know, there's never been the federal government stepping up for labor. It's always the federal government stepping up for corporations or landowners. So, right, we, so. we as a country have never been a true land of the free, home of the brave type thing. It's always been what corporate corporations and landowner have de de deemed to be what's worth and what's not worth. Is gold worth something? Is silver worth something? Are diamonds worth something? Is paper money worth something? And it's all been corporately driven and corporately owned. Yeah, so what you're saying, Norton, is that money is power, power is money. I think that's, exactly. um, that's the way it functions in society. What I guess what I was thinking, and, and I think that's a, that's definitely a correct answer. Um, what I was thinking about is like when I was growing up, uh, when I first became aware of money, I thought it had an intrinsic value. This piece of paper had intrinsic value. And uh, now as I'm older, I think there is no intrinsic value in money. The value is in what money represents. So the idea would be money is to wealth what uh, what like words are to meaning so they they signify something but the actual true wealth is somewhere else and so um, to me money is just a it's it's a it's an agreement a credit arrangement between one person and, and other people or between communities and as an, an agreement it's has no intrinsic value other than the communities that are surrounding it to, to prop it up. So money can be anything. Money can be infinite uh, if it's just a function of agreements. Now, I think where the public policy debate gets confusing is that some people think money has intrinsic value or that it's backed up by intrinsic value. And some people think that it's infinite based on agreements and just as a, a way to coordinate human desires and incentives. And so that's where the public policy breaks down. Um, because of the discussion, we're talking about two different forms of money. Um, we got two minutes left, though. I want to get to Dustin and Ellie before we have to say goodbye. Money and currency are two different things. Money is what the people agree has value. Currency is what the government tells the people has value. And uh, your, the value of your currency is based on how much your people trust your government. And when the value of the dollar goes down, it means that the people trust the government less. Yeah, that is the that is actually the stock market for trust in government. So you're tying in what Norton was saying um, about power equals money with what what I was saying, which is kind of mm -hmm. money is community agreement. I like it, Dustin. Ellie, you get the closing thoughts. I think that's a really good distinction. I appreciate that. Um, I was going to say that I didn't agree with Norton's claim that money is inherently corporate. I, I do think that there can be, I do think that um, there can be a private sector that's not corporate or, you know what I mean? That's just like a smaller scale thing that isn't always in every way connected to corporate power. And I think that um, especially people who live at the margins, I mean, there's money exchanged all the time that isn't corporate. So anyway, that's just my, my small uh, comment. Right. Well, I think um, you can exist outside the market. And before we had a, a national currency, there were lots of regional currencies that allowed those um, smaller places to do to do that, to have their own insulated economy. And there are also examples of gift economies that works out uh, work outside of capitalism that are successful in, in certain areas uh, that have certain natural wealth. 
So it is possible. Um, I took Norton to just mean that uh, wealth equals power, which I think, especially if you have government power and government taxation, and they have a fiat currency that you have to pay your taxes in, that's a lot of power. And if they align themselves with corporate interest, then, then that's too much power. Yeah, I just I don't think that all power is corporate, and I don't think that all money is inherently corporate. I guess I, I see just other avenues through which money and power flow. Um, yeah. And so I, I don't think, consider it as integral to the core definition. Yeah, well, I think that's a good clarification uh, for sure. Because, yeah, there are lots of d- examples of, of economies outside of um, our corporate um, state. <laughs> and with that, I want to thank everyone for participating today. This has been the No Name Podcast. You guys have a great rest of your Sunday. <laughs>